Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. The new Youngline sneaker they rolled out is tremendous. It is my favorite walk-around shoe. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He beat Andre Agassi in five rough sets to win the French Open in 1991 and the following year defended the title, only dropping one set. Additionally, he won the Australian Open twice. He's a former world number one, former U.S. Davis Cup captain. The Hall of Famer James Spencer Courier is today's guest. Wait, so you're going to, what, what match are you broadcasting from? Uh... Uh, Fritz and Travaglia. Okay. Taylor, Taylor's plan, yeah. Travaglia in Rome. Yeah. I mean, Rome just started, man. Unbelievable. Rome, Rome's <laughs> been going on since like 3 o'clock this morning, our time. I know, I know. It's so crazy. <laughs> Gentlemen, you hear one Rome, not once but twice. He won Rome and he washed it down with a French Open victory. One of the greatest two weeks. I'm uh, sorry, it must have been four weeks of, of his life. And that's former world number one. Hall of Famer, and my friend, uh, James Spencer Courier, my man. Mm-hmm. Chat, so, what's up, buddy? It's great to hear your voice. So good. As you know, we do a five-set format, but I'm going to pass on the first set, and we're going to just go hammer right into the second set, okay. the on-the-court report. And I'm going to – I have so much I want to talk about. I'm just going to hit it, and let's not lay down too hard on anything. We're just going to go. When – Sasha Zverev was up two sets and a break in the third. Where were you and what was what were you thinking? I was on my couch in, in Los Angeles watching the match diligently and and enjoying seeing the you know both Sasha and and Dominic try and do something for the first time, which is one of the things I like most about this sport. How do you deal with that finish line pressure and you know Boy, his for Sasha's forehand was was not great through a lot of the tournament, but it was really great in the first two sets of that match, and I was ho- hoping it would hold up for him. And um, you know, he got a little bit tight, which is understandable. And and Dominic, you know, he put his guts into that match, and, and he turned it around. Sasha came into that match; he hadn't played well. Yeah, I agree. He sort of saved his best for last, and then he got, I think, mega tight. Or do you think it was a mix? Do you think? Do you think team? No. No, you're you're spot on. He got mega tight. Both of them are mega tight. Team was pressing early. He was tight. He was, he should have been the far fresher player physically. He'd only dropped uh, a set to Chilich en route to the final, and Sasha had been grinding his way through. So, uh, but yeah, playing playing for that first major title, it obviously handcuffed them, and they they're not the first players to experience that. It's not unusual at all, and they certainly won't be the last. And uh, as an aside, Team's twenty seven. Mm-hmm. Borg was already off the tour. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, it's a different time, obviously. And Bjorn had an amazing career and was just ready to stop. And, but, you know, Dominic is definitely just in the middle of his career, given where players are playing at the high level well into their mid-30s now. He, he has a lot of open road in front of him. And yeah, I don't think anyone believes that this is the only Grand Slam he's ever going to win. I think it would be fair to say that he was by far the best player in the tournament. He seemed head, heads and tails better than his competition in that second week. 
Yeah, in the second week, once Novak removed himself from the tournament, then Dominic's, uh, Dominic's level was phenomenal. Medvedev was also playing at a great level, and that match really felt like, in the semifinals, I think I certainly felt like that was the de facto final, just based on their level of play. Whoever won that match was going to beat, you know, either Karenio Busta or Zverev, and it, it almost didn't happen. I mean, that was a heck of a semifinal between team and, and Medvedev, and could have been a deep five-setter wasn't but it was uh, high level tennis and and then team whether his ankle Achilles was a little bit stiff I don't know whether it was just the moment but he certainly didn't look like the same player for the for the bulk of the final to be honest and it was interesting to me just how much better Daniil Medvedev was than you know he really beat the hell out of Tiafo and Tiafo had been having a great tournament seemed to be like a real difference in levels what did you think yeah i mean medvedev for me was the favorite once once uh, we lost novak in the tournament i thought that medvedev was going to win and uh you know he certainly was impressive against francis you know francis is at, at a great tournament and should be excited about what his future holds but medvedev has a more complete game at this point and, and he was able to to get to some holes in francis's game and kind of manhandle him and uh and then the Rublev match with Medvedev was, was a barn burner, too. That was high-level tennis. So, I mean, there were some really fun matches to watch. What, what was your favorite match of the tournament? What would you say? Oh, man. I thought that the women's semis, those back-to-back -back night, was by Red far the most incredible mm -hmm. night of – I mean, the best. that was the best tennis. I loved watching Jen Brady compete. I loved the way Azarenka blew through – all those matches and then that Serena as a rank of match was just a heavyweight for me it was a sports event of the, of the whole pandemic of whole everything I love that tournament though yeah the tournament was was awesome to see and and that uh that Thursday night semifinal showdown those were incredible matches this level of tennis I mean let's be honest they they played at a more consistent the women played from that point on in the tournament at a more consistent level closer to their peak than the men were able to achieve uh, and they had a lot more experience most of them with the exception of Jen Brady playing in those moments and I think that showed yeah, and uh, boy it was super impressive um I mean, Jim Brady is just an awesome athlete and she's putting it all together. It's great to see that level of commitment that she's shown pay off. And um, I hope another American tennis players get inspired by that. I love women that have massive forehands because to me, it seems like the ones who do win, win majors, <laughs> you know, like you've got to be able to hit a cross court forehand. And it's a lot of, not, a lot of, a lot of women don't seem to be able to, and Jen Brady can hit that forehand like nobody's business boy. Yeah, I just think big picture historically, the men's game has been more forehand driven. And, and historically, at least in recent times, seems like the, the female players, their backhands are always something they can count on. And the ones that do have the, the big forehand can, can go a little bit bigger. And I think we're seeing balance um, come around in both and both in the men's and women's game. I think we're seeing that balance really matters. It's harder to get away uh, with with one big shot and and one average shot these days because the game is just so fast they can get it to your average shot a little bit easier it seems like Sheppy Naomi Osaka um, you know I think we're all still trying to process everything that Naomi has brought to tennis here since the the pandemic hit I mean she she started to show her cards that she was going to get involved 
socially early on. She she mentioned in her social media that she was not going to be silent anymore. She had missed out on lots of interesting conversations because she was too shy and that that period of her life was behind her and she was going to be more forthcoming and boy has she um she's really dug herself in and as has coco golf as well and into a lot of these social justice issues and she's making her point heard loud and clear she she is without question the leader of the sport uh, right now as far as as having a voice on issues outside of the lines uh, that's male or female. She's clearly defined that role for herself here in the last month. And it has not hurt her tennis one bit. She hasn't lost a match. She she defaulted that final of the, the Cincinnati and New York tournament to, to uh, Vika because of the hamstring. But boy, uh, it, that weight of taking on more than, than just yourself can can add a lot of pressure. It can slow other other athletes or other people down, distract them. And it seemed to just simply focus her and inspire her and it was um it, it's incredible to win the us open period um the way that she did it with the messaging she was sending just amplifies it as far as degree of difficulty from my lens and her level um her tennis was sky high it was it was two years ago osaka tennis man mm -hmm. she yeah was, well you like that forehand cross court she ooh. can bomb it she was she was murdering the ball and um Got like that running Sampras forehand cross court slingshot move, right? Just and, slashes it flat. And she doesn't really miss her backhand like a lot of the women, like we just said. What do you say about Serena? Well, I mean, I think Serena had a great tournament, to be honest. I think she played at a very high. I mean, that first set she played against Vika was astounding how yeah. good it was. And that would be hard to maintain. And, and Vika, to her credit, uh, was able to, to absorb the blows, stay in there, stay positive in a way that she may not have in, in the past. And she eventually ran her down. But uh, Serena's level, it, is, it has been there since she came back from, the, from giving birth. She's been close to winning. This is another close call for her where no guarantees if she beats Vika that she beats Naomi, especially how Naomi was playing. But she's right in the conversation. And at 39, you know, she's almost 39 yeah. or maybe just turned. Yeah. That shouldn't be lost on us. We we talk about Roger and what he's doing at his age and how incredible it is that he's viable. Equally incredible for Serena to be viable, if not even more so, because of the, the trauma that she had at, in her childbirth. It was a very dicey situation, as she's spoken openly, openly about, and she's had other health issues. So, um, no, she should be, in my view, I'm sure she's disappointed because she only expects to ever win, but she she should be proud of the way she's playing. And and optimistic, she's definitely still good enough to win majors, no doubt about it. 39, man. She's 39, yeah. man. Unbelievable. It's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Well, I had a, one of my listeners, you know, shot me a note, said, you know, she should retire. She'll never win another major. I said, man, first of all, I'm not going to say one thing <laughs> against her. And the other thing I'm not going to say, and the other thing is, if I could be a pro athlete, I would play until I couldn't make uh, a main draw slam and i was asking some friends i said how many years do you think she could play in the main draw of a major and we were like probably like another five or six years man if she really wanted yeah 45 would be i think a realistic shot same for roger because they're both offensive players so they can they can pre prevent themselves from playing a ton of defense if they're on jj wolf 
I like JJ Wolf. He he comes uh, comes out of Ohio State. He's worked with with one of my best friends in my life, David Cass, who, who has a tennis academy over there, and he's been helping out JJ and Christina Scott is as well. I mean, he's uh, let me stop you, Katrina Scott. Katrina Scott. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, JJ Wolf is impressive. Um, he he has a good game. He has a good mentality. He moves well. He's working on getting in better shape, which will help him move even better and be more agile. And he has firepower and he has belief. So, you know, he, he gets a couple rounds uh, through the belt and in, 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 under his belt there. That's a great effort. And he's closing in on the top 100, Shappy. He's not far away. He's not far away. And just uh, David Cass uh, is a mysterious guy, right? We don't know a lot about him. He's sort Maybe of... <laughs> right, right. We want it, but who, who is he... Sure. And what's his background? Of course. So Dave, David Cass is, is my age. He was in uh, my age group in the juniors. We were at Boletari's. We were roommates together. Uh, he's been one of my best friends ever since. Uh, he's an incredibly successful real estate developer. That's his job. Um, he's been running uh, the, the real estate business basically since he's about 26 years old in Columbus, Ohio, that, that works regionally. But he's also passionate about tennis and one of his best friends um, and same you know, was was number one player in our age group for a lot of years. Ty Tucker is the Ohio State men's tennis coach and David has helped him as a volunteer assistant for years and helped support that program got involved with some of the, the graduating students there from from that program who went on and played professional and he just sort of slowly become involved in, in helping tennis in the region and and he does it out of the goodness of his heart and out of passion. He's not in it for the money. He doesn't make any money doing it. And uh, he, he just helps these kids. And he's, uh, you know, he's a super smart guy and he's, he's carved out a really nice um, opportunity for kids in the Midwest that, that, um, that can gravitate to that program. And now some of them are coming in from other areas as well, like Katrina. It's another part of that story is he's he's got he had two players in the main draw of the U.S. Open and my listeners we just had Katrina on the show right after she, you know, put put uh, and Amanda and some over through the torture chamber. You, everyone <laughs> knows how I feel about Katrina. Um, what were your uh, impressions of how? She is at 600 in the world. <laughs> yeah, well, well so Katrina, I've, I've had the, the good fortune of being able to see her for a few years now because Zach Gallen, who has long run operations for us at Inside Out, running the Champion Series tournaments, also moonlights as a tennis coach. And he's been working with her now for a few years. And uh, so she came out to one of our events, actually, and hit some balls in, the, in a pro-am a few years ago. And she was already super impressive then. And she's got a lot of upside and she has a lot of room to improve. And she is definitely not the 600th ranked player in the world um, <laughs> as of today. She just hasn't had the chance to play the tournaments like most yeah. of the players because of the pandemic and all that. And, and she's going she's gonna to rise pretty quickly, I, I think. I think she's going to get there pretty fast. 5'11", serves 116. Uh, One of the best backhands in, in women's tennis already. Is that what the word on the street is? Is that mm -hmm. that's, it's that world class? Yep, yep, yeah. it is. And she's been working to retool her forehand and revamp that and shore up that side. But she has the just the athletic size she has that, that is nice to have in, in the sport. And, and the backhand's going gonna, gonna to generate a lot of wins for her. And JJ's got that funky style, man. I love that. You know, he's got the slim mustache with the the mullet, and yeah, it's he's his own man. JJ's his own man. He, he doesn't lack in confidence, which is really important in an individual sport. Um, he believes in himself, 
and he's going to be top 100. I, I believe if he's given enough tournament opportunities between now and, and sort of the end of November, he'll be main draw Australian Open straight in on his, on his ranking. And he's got unbelievable ball striking quality, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and he's got those burdock legs too, man. He's got like, <laughs> looks like he could be ready to, ready to just hop on a bike and ride the Tour de France. He's got thick legs. Um, yeah. Crisis of parents, Shapovalov, Sissipas, and maybe to a little bit of a different extent, Kennan. Do you have an opinion about these parents that the players are sort of screaming at and they look miserable? And Sissipas in particular had a very... Mm -hmm. It seems to have like a fairly public-y, you know, sort of mid-match sort of hatred of his dad. Um, what's your opinion? I think it's really tricky when parents are coaches. Uh, and I think that the, it's hard to, um, hard to put myself in those shoes since my parents thankfully weren't um, actively involved as, as far as coaching when I was a pro. But I think the stresses are, are, I do know the stresses of being a pro and, and the stress levels are incredibly high out there, especially in the, in the moments that matter the most, most, which are the majors. And sometimes when you're blurring those lines between a parent and a coach, it can be a little bit fraught with peril and it can damage that relationship potentially if it's not handled with care. Now, we all know sitting from this side of the fence, how much the parents care about their kids and only want the best for their kids. Kids probably don't realize that at this age, and, and they will a little bit later when they have kids of their own, perhaps. But it's, uh, I think it's tough, man, and it's hard to watch. But we got to keep in mind they're not the only players that are yelling at their coaches. It just happens that these coaches are their parents. But, you know, Andy Murray has long he's been given Jamie Delgado fits, you know, for, yeah. <laughs> since they've been together, and, and yeah. he's not the only one. So it, it's, um, it's a tricky one, but I think you just you you really multiply the degree of difficulty when when it's apparent as a coach. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you know just from my interactions, people seem to think that these parents maybe should get benched, and you know, these time for these kids to maybe go out on their own. It happens, and uh, it happens in time usually. Usually, your impressions of Novak getting bounced out of that tournament, man. Yeah, I think shock like everyone else when it happened. Just complete shock that uh, that, that the tournament has now been altered and the, the clear overwhelming favorite is out. There's going to be a new winner. He was he was tossed for you know his negligence and he knows that it was an accident. There was no malintent there. It doesn't change the way that I view Novak as far as a competitor. He's he's always at his best when he's fiery on the court and if when he stifles his emotions, he becomes a robot and his tennis suffers. But obviously, he did something you're not allowed to do. And it's, it's a cut and dry rule. If you injure or harm someone out there while you're playing with, with, uh, with you know, uh, with, with the malice, I'm mean, not this wrong word, with, um, you know, anger, which is he was angry when he smacked that ball, then you're going to get tossed. And that rule has to be evenly applied to everyone. And, and I, I would just say this too, just, just big picture. I mean, first of all, the referee handled it great. He had no choice. It was very clear cut. But think about the PR. Let's, let's just look back on the PR. If, if Novak had been given a free pass on that one, and two years ago, Serena's playing, and she has the dust up where she gets called for coaching because Patrick was sending her signals, and the umpire followed the rules there too. And, and let's say that, you know, and she suffered mightily because the umpire did his job and followed his rules. And she may not have understood all those rules. 
if the rules were not applied evenly to Novak, there would have been an incredible uproar. Uh, I mean, amongst all the media there and social media would have gone ballistic. How does this, how does Novak get away with this? How does a white male get away with something a black female didn't, you know, that would have been the narrative. So um, just big picture, there was no question it was the right call and it saved us a lot of grief, honestly, uh, and explaining yeah, ourselves to the non-tennis world uh, on rules not being applied, uh, applied fairly. And by the way, what a weird confluence of events. He got broken. He winged a ball at the side mm -hmm. of the court. Sideboard. Mm -hmm. He fired to the sideboard. Then he takes a spill, hits that off shoulder that he was rumored to have injured playing basketball in Cincinnati a year ago. He takes treatment. He looks like he was going into like a full rage, gets broken. And then he, you know, he decked the lineswoman. I mean, what a strange moment. Bizarre. Very bizarre. <laughs> um, what can you tell us about the union, the new union that no one seems to have any real, you know, understanding of that, that Novak is, you know, spearheading? Yeah, well, first of all, it's, a, it's the Players Association because they're they're not allowed to have a union, just the structure legally, they're not allowed to. I think it's something called the Sherman Act, but it's something along those lines. It's the Sherman Act, that's so, right. So they've formed this Players Association that they've been trying to do apparently for quite some time. And uh, a couple of things, one, uh, and I said this on Tennis Channel Live on day one of the Open when we were talking about it, and I, I firmly believe this. One, the timing was poor. Um, tennis is trying to get back in, in business and trying to get back on the good foot and we need to be as, as united as we can um, and, and this was not the time for it. I'm not saying that they don't have a right to have their, a voice that if they don't feel like they're getting proper representation now, by all means find it, but now was not the time. Just from a PR standpoint, it, it looked bad and it was bad. Number two, you, if you're going to, to try and get leverage and collectively bargain, you need the collective and you neither had the top male players along nor did you have the women. And that's a huge miss. If you want to have leverage in a negotiation, what's your leverage? You got to be able to strike if you're labor. And if you don't have all the, the pieces of the puzzle to strike, you don't have the leverage that you deserve if you want to try and negotiate appropriately. So that, that was bad. Um, and, and I feel like three, they just installed new management at the, uh, at the ATP and Novak was responsible for that job being open. He was the one who got Chris Kermode fired from everything I understand, or at least he was a big part of it. You got new management in there. You haven't given them a chance to work, see what they can do, work within the confines for another, you know, six months or so and give them a chance to work in a non pandemic time and see if they can actually achieve the goals that you're after. And if that doesn't work, then blow it all up and bring a union and come in and get what you feel like you deserve. So those, those are my thoughts, Shappy. What about you? I'm leaving it right there, baby. I, I, I don't have a, I don't know. I don't know what to say okay. about it. It seemed extremely cavalier. <laughs> you know, these guys are on the court. We're in the middle of the COVID. There's nobody in the crowd. Yeah. All the sponsors are freaking out. It's a, you know, my next question was going to be, is the business of tennis, um, prize money, sponsorships, all those things, is it, would it be fair to say it's in trouble? No, I don't think that would be fair to say at all. It's I, not I fair think, to say. Uh, no, I mean, no, the revenues of the sport pre-pandemic were the, the biggest they've ever been by a long shot. 
the ATP is signing new deals right now that are going to increase the revenues um, that haven't been announced yet, but they will be soon. And the Grand Slams before this pandemic were just printing money. Uh, and no, the, the sport has never been healthier financially than, than it was prior to the pandemic. Now, obviously, the business looks different when you can't have fans and you, 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 you lose your in-game revenue. That's a massive hit more so for the non-slam tournaments who don't have the big TV rights that the slams do. So we're going to struggle until we can get back to normal, Shappy. There's no doubt about that. But um, the prize money has been going like this. I mean, it's been, you know, the U.S. Open prize money is is ridiculous. The, if you look at it on a graph where it's gone the last 30 years, it's like a hockey stick going straight up. So, um, no, I, do they deserve more? I think they can make a case that they could deserve more of the revenue at the slams, but I think the slams can make a case that you have the exact same talent when you play at Indian Wells and in Miami. Why is it that we make so much more revenue than those tournaments do? The, the, the actual talent in the product is exactly the same. There's no difference. You know, I don't consider best of five, you know, something that, that, is necessarily drawing more revenue for for the game than best of three. So there are arguments to be made on both sides, but you know the players have to be uh, completely united if they want to um, get more of that money. Um, but no, I, I think the sport's been very very lucky and very healthy and been riding that wave of Serena and Venus and and uh, the big four in men's tennis. Jim bullish on the future. I love that. Let's move into the third set. This is where we talk about this is a portion of our show. We talk about your career. Since it's the Italian Open, you got to tell the story of winning the doubles in Rome with Pete Sampras. That's oh, a little yeah. that's a little known fact. Uh, that's 1989. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's an unbelievable. Yeah. By the way, that's an unbelievable yeah. little wrinkle in the career. Yeah, Pete and I were playing doubles that spring. Uh, there used to be um, actually at Forest Hills, the old side of the U.S. Open, as you would remember, they had the WTC event there the, on the green clay. So we could play in Charleston, South Carolina on the green clay and then Forest Hills, and then you'd head over to Europe. So Pete and I started playing doubles in that swing. Who approached you? Who approached you? Uh, well, we were, we, were, we were both training out of Boletaries then. We were traveling with, uh, with two coaches that were uh, extremely friendly. We spent a lot of meals and practices together. So it was supernatural. Who? Uh, Sergio Cruz and, oh, God, uh, and Joe Brandy. Those were okay. the coaches. And, uh, and that was it. And that was it. So we made the finals of Forest Hills, and then we played in Rome and won the title. And we ended up making the Masters that year. And uh, again, playing the, the with the doubles final was separate from the singles final, which was at Madison Square Garden. So we played at the Royal Albert Hall in London in this doubles only event. <laughs> Royal Albert Hall, doubles yeah, only. Doubles only. Tour finals back in those days. Who'd you play? Oh, well, you, you play the round robin over right, there, right, right. tour final. So we came in seventh out of eight teams. We were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the last question in, the, yeah. in this portion of your career from me. And then I, my, my listeners had a couple of questions. Rome 92, you mm -hmm. beat Mooster first round. You beat Bruguera third round. How important was beating Mooster first round to – then absolutely going lights out. You only drop one set to win the French. I mean, yeah. you went back to back. What was that moment like? Well, it was it was 
not ideal to have Mooster in the first round of, of Rome, but the, that was the bad news. The good news was that I had just come off of playing those Asian hardcore tournaments and I'd won Tokyo, Hong Kong. So I was on a winning streak and I was very fit and felt good. Um, but, you know, Mooster was a problem and I needed to solve it. I got through that one and, and had a pretty good run. And I don't remember exactly, um, you know, how challenging Rome was. I know the final was pretty comfortable um relatively speaking i think was that the year that i played goron or was that the year i played carlos uh, costa i think it was goron yeah i think it was goron that year too and i was able to get through in straights which that was a best of five final back then so i had a good head of steam by the time i got to the finals because if you beat mooster and surgery who was ascendant but not you know a grand slam champ at that time you you were feeling pretty good about yourself get to the french what was that tournament like for you? I started off nervous. I played my first match out on the bull ring, um, and I played uh, I played a Swede. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was. Magnus Larsson. No, no, that that was the. Oh year before. No, it was. I can't remember who it was. Um, but first round, I, I the first set was super tight. I think he had a set point, and he literally had to return into the fence on the fly. It was like the craziest <laughs> thing you'll ever see. Then I won the set, and he went away, and I won it, and, and sort of caught a groove after that. But it, it was not easy the first round playing as defending champion. I felt the pressure. The question from Brianna Foust, one of my listeners. Do you feel that any of your career stats are underrated now that a lot of your achievement has been overshadowed in time by – you know, some of these cats. No, none, none of my stuff is, is, uh, I think I'm, I'm rated just fine. I'm lucky to have a good career, thankful for it, all that. And, um, you know, any, any time that, that, uh, you want to compare my career to, to the, the greats of the game, you're going to, you're going to have a hard time because they're just uh, so, so superior and, and phenomenal. And, uh, but I appreciate, appreciate that I did what I did. I, I feel very fortunate. 100%. And what is the story of the book? Well, the only time I ever read a book on the court was was in uh, the, the tour finals, right? It was the once, right? Yeah, I only, read, once. I, only, I only read a book on court once. I always had books in my bag, and I would read them before matches to try and get relaxed because um, we didn't have phones or iPads back in those days. But I was playing the tour finals at the end of the long year, and I was playing Andre Medvedev in, uh, in the first set. I was super stressed out. He beat me in the first set. And at the end of the first set, I sat at the changer and like, I've got to turn my brain off, right? And the same way that Arthur Ashe closed his eyes at the change of ends at the Wimbledon final when he played Connors and meditated, like I, my brain is far too active and I'm, I'm not in a good headspace. So I'm going to read and just disappear for 60 seconds at a time and then go out and play. And I came out and, and played much better and I won the second set and I was in a winning position. I served for the match in the third set, 40 love and choked. I double faulted. I missed some shots and, and I ended up losing six and a third to, to Medvedev. And had I won that match, maybe I would have kept reading books on a change of ends and maybe other, other juniors would have done the same. But I, I lost and the media thought that, you know, I'd lost my mind and um, they did, failed to recognize that I actually played better once I started reading. So and I think they were just surprised that an athlete could read Shappy. Not many of us in the locker room have that capability. Uh, <laughs> So, but the book was called Maybe the Moon from Amistad Maupin, and that also was a little bit of a, a book that threw people off because it was actually real literature and not a Grisham novel. And I love Grisham novels, and I've read them a lot too. So it was just the book that I had in my bag. Amistad Maupin. Let's move okay. into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. <laughs> I say it 
you say the what comes in your mind. You ready? I'm ready. Where do you keep your trophies? Uh, they're in boxes. Because you're because you're uh, you're in flux. No, well, they're in box. Well, they they were in a, a cabinet before, like uh, you know, un- underneath something. They're they're not exposed. Let's put it that way. Oh, come on, you don't put the French trophy. So so when I was packing to move recently, I I pulled the trophies out and they were like tarnished so i cleaned them like you know got the silver polish and cleaned them up and then wrapped them and all that and my kids are like what are those dad <laughs> which Amazing. is good I like, I like it that way you got to find a spot for those for those those slam trophies no, no, um, they're, they're tight they're good they're beautiful do you keep your credentials i do have credentials yeah and, and i keep threatening to to make a collage of them one of these days but i, I have them and i have them in boxes craziest thing you ever did with prize money craziest thing i ever did with prize money do you ever just catch that check and just say, man, we're going to safari. We're going no, to I, I never was, I was never like a wild spender, but the craziest thing I felt like I ever did with prize money was travel with it. One year I, I won like Doha and they paid me in cash in dollars. And I was super tight. It was a big check. It was like 60 grand or something like that. And now I've got to go to Australia and like super stressed out about carrying this money. Like, couldn't you just wire the money? But no, they paid it in cash. So I had like a couple envelopes um, of 60 grand <laughs> before I got home to the States. Amazing. Yeah. Um, your favorite forehand? My favorite forehand that I've ever hit or just in, uh, on tour or? You cannot. You, it's, this is a 10-ball scramble. You have to just say oh. what comes to your mind. Your favorite forehand? Uh, Nadal. I, I wish I had Nadal's forehand. Favorite backhand? Um, Novak. Wish I had Novak's backhand. Serve? Serena. Wish I had Serena serve. And volleys. Edberg. Your best endorsement deal, to be, whether for whatever reason, the best mm. endorsement deal you ever had? No, Nike, because I love their product. They're great to work with. You've been Nike. You've been Nike. You were Nike for your own gener- yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm still, I'm with New Balance now. And, and Bruce Schilling, who was at Nike, who we love and know, he went over to New Balance and brought me with him. And they make great product too. New Balance, fantastic. I love their colors and how they do it. Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is, we, it used to be the king of the core, but I think I'm changing it up. I got one last question for you. How are you feeling about tennis? So um, I, I'm an optimist by nature. Um, I, I certainly recognize that we've been so lucky with this, with this golden era, and it's going to be difficult mm-hmm. to replicate that going forward. But new stars are are starting to emerge, and they will continue to do so. And just like with the NBA, when Michael Jordan retired, other people come in and fill the void, and they're different, but they and they do it in their own way. But they're they will shine, and I feel like tennis has the built-in advantage of a natural hedge. We we we're not just men's, we're not just women's. So we're, we get to mint stars in both genders. And that differentiates us from from all the other sports because we're playing together at most of our big events. So, you know, Coco Golf I think, is going to do wonders for our sport in the United States. I think Naomi Osaka has already proven that she's going to be a, a massive player in in sport here for the for the future. And on the men's side, we we still have the luxury, I think, of Nadal and Djokovic for for several more years of winning majors, and that's going to give. Some of these guys like Dominic Team uh, and Sasha Zverev and, and Felix and, and Dennis from Canada and these players and hopefully 
like Taylor and Riley and our guys in the States a chance to, to get up there and win a couple while those guys are still here. Cause I think that will also signal to the public that these players are for real if they're mm -hmm. winning in that era. So I'm bullish. I think we're going to do fine. I think the, I think that some of the things that, uh, that may seem like they work against us, the international aspect, which is tough during the pandemic on travel, I think long-term that can help us. And uh, I feel like we're going to be just fine in tennis, but we're going to have to keep working at it. We cannot take it for granted. That's for sure. And now you're pillar to post Italian right into the French. You're on the mic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm going to work here. And as soon as we're done with this, going into tennis channel to call Taylor Fritz's match with the, with the local Travaglia and uh, yeah, I'll be leaving for Paris a week from Thursday. Oh, you're going to be on, you're we're going. going, you're going yeah, tennis, tennis channel sending us. We're going. Woo! Awesome. That's tee good up, news. Tee up the COVID test, baby. We're coming. Tee it up. Jim Courier, thank you so much, as always. It's always good to see you and talk to you. And, uh, wow, have a terrific fall, I guess. This is like yeah. an interesting fall season. It's, it's a sprint. It's a sprint to uh, the Tour Finals, but we're looking forward. Just so thankful to get to spend some time with you and get to see some live tennis again. It's awesome. All right, baby. I'll see you down the road. James you know Spencer it. Courier, you are released. Beauty shappy. Huge thank you to Jim Courier and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. We just re-upped the tennis t-shirt of 2020, the Quarantine Classic. It's a throwback to the shirts we used to get when we were kids at tournaments. We're taking orders for the Blanc, the Terrabat 2, and the Vare, which is green. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.